So I think that the zone as myth is very powerful, even if it is totally unpersuasive as mm -hmm. reality. Mm -hmm. I mean, my favorite example there is the proposal for something called a Hayek Tower, okay. which was uh, that they were actually starting to build during the pandemic, which is just a sort of stainless steel pole that they would put in the middle of the Caribbean <laughs> with a kind of aluminum shell wow. and some like mood lighting inside. And people were saying, look, the perfect escape. <laughs> and I mean, like the idea that this is something that could actually exist or function for longer than about 15 minutes is so patently foolish and ridiculous that like the first impulse is to like never yeah. bother thinking about this twice again. Hello there, welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history with Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare in the UK. Hello. Hi. Hiya. And myself, Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo. So today we have on a guest we've had on before back in 2019, Quince Slobodian, um, an author whose uh, book Globalist is one of the most sophisticated and interesting and probing accounts of neoliberalism. In that episode with Quinn, we learn about the unexpected origins of neoliberalism, why neoliberalism talks about freedom, but actually promotes order. Uh, and much else besides, if you want to check that out, that's episode 74 and 75. This week, George and Phil met up with Quinn Slobodian in person in London to talk about his new book, Guys, why don't you tell us? Yeah, so we were lucky enough to uh, meet up in uh, UCL in central London and talk about crack up capitalism, market radicals and the dream of a world without democracy. So this is Quinn's new book. Um, I guess the central idea in this is the uh, is the, the zone. So looking at the recent history of capitalism through this idea of, of the zone. There are 82 types. Don't worry, there isn't a table with all 82. Um, there's 5,400 across the world by, by 2018. So this it's kind of like the exception that proves the rule, maybe. So this economic zone is a way to look at how capitalism and particularly libertarian um, understandings of, of capitalism developed in the 90s and around that period. So, yeah, it's a great discussion. Yeah, the zone. I mean, the classic idea of the zone is export processing zones, free trade zones that were carved out of China as part of China's industrialization. Hong Kong is the kind of paradigmatic model. Um and as well as um, Singapore to a different extent. Um, yeah. but so the idea is these territories in which the normal legislation of the country in question no longer applies and how that enables certain kinds of economic activities, which you know are especially profitable or appealing to investors um, or um, you know allow for certain kinds of um, what wouldn't be possible in other in yeah. other kind of jurisdictional contexts. So it's a great premise for a discussion of um, the developments of global capitalism. So yeah, just to add to this then, so you have these these zones and put all together, they perforate this view of the the global, the national, they they kind of reveal what is the logic of, of capitalism. So they, they allow some things which wouldn't otherwise be possible, but we unpack all this and get into it with, uh, with Quinn. Interesting and uh, intriguing stuff. Um, I certainly found so having listened to the interview. If you uh, yourself, listener, would like to listen to the entirety of the interview, make sure you sign up at patreon.com slash bungacast. Uh, subscribers from $5 a month and up will get access to the entire interview, uh, as well as two, at least two, original episodes a month uh, and much else besides. And $10 subscribers get access to our reading club, which has uh, just come out. Catch you then. Hi, Quinn. Welcome back to the show. Good to be here. So it turns out you have an alter ego, Peter Slobodian. So who is he and uh, why is he pissing people off? Well, he is in the first instance my grandfather's brother who did have a brief and sort of unspectacular <laughs> career in the National Hockey League in the <laughs> early 20th century. But more recently, he's also been misattributed as the author of my recent book by The Telegraph in their review of the book, which... I have to say, I've still only read the first three lines of because I'm not a subscriber. There are ways. There are ways to get around it <laughs> without having to subscribe. Don't mm -hmm. worry. <laughs> so we, um, so uh, people might, uh, listeners might be able to check out. It was a tweet, or the review is by 
one of the uh, Telegraph's um, libertarian, I'm not quite sure he's a consistent libertarian, but kind of quasi-libertarian, quasi cranky libertarian uh, stable, Ross Clark. And um, listeners can take a look if they want to find it. So we, we last had you on in summer 2019, and that was episode 77. And it was to talk about your earlier and excellent book, Globalists. And before we talk about crack-up capitalism, can you tell us a little bit about how Globalists was received? And if you're thinking about the arguments in the book has changed in the interim, if at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so the book Globalists was a funny one because it was more or less written before the rupture of 2016 and Brexit and Trump, but then it came out afterwards. So it became a kind of instant history in the sense that I was describing a consensus which no longer existed by the time it uh, hit print. And in the intervening years, I mean, one thing that has become sort of unavoidable for me is the way that the term, <laughs> the top line title of the book itself has become um, something other than something that existed over at the fringes of political discourse, but has become uh, a slur on the lips of people like Ron DeSantis, Trump himself, Victor Orban. So there's a kind of background dissatisfaction for me that the way that you best criticize capitalism is by sort of looking at the scale above the nation and sort of finding all of the villains there, to, so to speak, and the most important actors and architects as being those building, constructing supranational institutions. And that therefore, with this book, I kind of wanted to flip it on its head and look at the scale beneath the nation as a place to write a different history of neoliberalism and also a different history of the present. Yeah. So, I mean, the other aspect of this that I think is fascinating is also that globalists, that I've seen people actually say that even to say the word globalist is mm -hmm. to be a conspiracy theorist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so I thought that was, and you know, I mean, that's, I mean, it's attached to um, kind of the suspicion circling around the World Economic Forum and Klaus mm -hmm. Schwab and Davos Mann and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and I, th but I thought it was interesting because it seems to me there is no other, you know, it is a good account to say globalist is a good descriptor of the people who you talk about in that book, the mm -hmm. people who kind of um, convened, as you discuss, um, you know, very evocatively how they convened in Vienna in the aftermath of the collapsed Habsburg Empire, how their vision was genuinely global, um, and how they wanted to restore a particular 19th century vision of the world. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there is that, you know, I was trying to think if it's kind of, it's if it's a poison word, it doesn't seem to me that there is any other way to, um, well, I mean, there are other ways, but I mean, it's a perfectly adequate, if not kind of, you know, the right exact term to describe the vision of um, a particular group of neoliberals whose story begins in the interwar period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's the kind of one of the curses of trying to do any kind of public intellectual work is you have to sort of think of both registers on the one hand, you know, what is like empirically defensible and what sort of makes sense in the abstract. But then also, you know, how do these terms that you're using operate and circulate, you know, beyond the realm of the academy and so on. And I think there is a way that the globalist um, target has become so overburdened by different groups of people especially since the pandemic and the and the the uh the measures to contain the pandemic that there is a kind of phenomenon of the the owl of minerva flying at dusk because the idea that it is precisely now that sort of the world economic forum or klaus schwab has their greatest influence actually seems to miss the point entirely yeah, i mean indeed, actually yeah. i think the world economic forum is less important than it ever was at present it's really like the wto become a kind of um an antiquated talk shop and a kind of anachronistic artifact of an earlier 90s and early 2000s moment so it seems like to get better purchase on things and also just to keep things um, more interesting becomes necessary to like, seek elsewhere. Yeah. So you've mentioned, um, I mean, I think it's a great point actually about the, you know, the fact that it's uh, very misdirected. But you mentioned the, the way you've kind of tried to flip um, the approach and crack up capitalism compared to globe, the um, globalists. So could you summarize the core thesis of crack up capitalism for us? Sure. I mean, I think the way that I propose the term is both as a kind of description of the way that the organization of global capitalism has transformed over the last 40 years or so to 
just empirically describe the fact that the nation level is not really where capitalism organizes itself, that the concentrations of power beneath the level of the nation, whether it's the kind of command and control centers of international financial centers or the concentrations of production in places like export production uh, processing zones or special economic zones, kind of requires a different set of lenses to understand just how everyday capitalism works. And all the geographers and anthropologists and sociologists of the world have been very busy describing this world of zones for literally decades now, but often in sort of so arcane uh, disciplinary terminology that it's totally inscrutable to outside readers. So part of the task of the book was to just kind of act as a carrier, a translator of things happening inside of disciplines to a larger audience so that we're not trapped in this kind of unhelpful binary of either global or national. So on the one hand, the crack up capitalism is just a way to say something that geographers have known for ages, which is that globalization has both centrifugal and centripetal force, and it both integrates in some ways and creates new divisions and fragments in other ways. On the other hand, it's suggested in the book as a kind of a self-conscious ideology. So there are people who I introduce in the book who are not just observing this, this fact of sort of the fragmentation of the production or the distribution landscape, but who are wondering and speculating to themselves whether this kind of workaday machinery of globalization could offer a kind of a blueprint for a transformation of politics at a much more basic level. So in that sense, they become kind of advocates of a version of politics where contract, commercial exchange, arbitration, insurance are not just things that one does sort of in the workplace, but it becomes then the tissue with which um, collectives would rearrange themselves um, in the absence of something like a traditional Republican ideal or an ideal of representative government. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually had a, just a quick follow-up on this, because I think it comes through in the book pretty nicely. Um, some of the, I guess, some of the characters who are these who are these crack-up uh, capitalists, but could you maybe just paint us a bit of a picture of who is, who would you say is kind of the, the typical crack-up capitalism supporter today? Mm-hmm. You talk about Peter Thiel, his idea of this kind of thousands of zones rather than 200-odd nation-states. Mm-hmm. So yeah, who, who are the sorts of people who are articulating this vision today? Well, I mean, the the interesting thing about the shift from the more recent book, Globalist, to this one is a kind of where that book ended, this one began mm. in the sense that that book was still, I think, pretty satisfied with a narration of the 20th century that was a world of empires transforming into a world of nations. Mm. The suggestion of globalists was that there were people, some of whom were sort of self-described neoliberals, most who were not who were interested in designing a kind of a a shell of supranational institutions that could be laid over effectively a Mm -hmm. world of nation states to ensure that certain um, rights of capital would be respected even in the age of sovereignty and Mm self-determination. But the interesting thing about following those actors is when I got to the late 1970s, I sort of found um, a figure standing in a place I did not expect him to be standing, uh, saying the things he would be saying, which was Milton Friedman standing in Hong Kong in 1978 and saying, this place, which looks like a kind of artifact of the past, is actually perhaps kind of the solution to the problems that we've been Mm. facing in an era of um, decolonization and national self-determination. Not because it was a place that was pioneering kind of supranational forms of encasement, but because it had sort of circumstantially avoided the problem of organized labor, Hmm. avoided the problem of democracy as a ongoing crown colony possession of Great Britain. So Friedman, you know, the story ends up then opening the crack up capitalism book. The sort of opening scene is again, Friedman standing there, but he isn't the person who I would identify closest with that tradition in the in the intervening years. If anyone, interestingly, his son and grandson have become mm. more kind of innovative um, avatars of new forms of politics where you wouldn't sort of repurpose the state, which I, I still continue to think is something that Friedman or Hayek believed in, yeah. but you would try to do away with the state altogether. So the fact that that Friedman moved in the 70s to San Francisco, stayed there 
His son, David Friedman, later moved to Silicon Valley, took a job as a law professor in Santa Clara that he continues to hold to this day. His son, Patry Friedman, came yeah. out and worked as a Google engineer for a while before launching the Seasteading Institute initiatives. Suggests that the kind of the energy of this neoliberal movement, you know, sort of continues its westward march, sort of from mm -hmm. Vienna, as we talked about, to Geneva, to the east coast of the United States, sort of the United Nations stuff, and then out to a more um, frontier idea of how capitalism yeah. could be organized. So a lot of the people I focus in on are people you'd associate with the kind of techno-libertarian mm -hmm. um, imaginary Teal you mentioned, but yep. the last chapter is about Balaji Srinivasan, yeah. who is probably right now the most prominent advocate of something like exitarianism, yeah. and is now sort of writing his own books and almost taking this on full time as a role to propose this idea mm. of uh, creating new states technologically enabled. No, I, li I like that idea of moving east to west, and now it's yeah, it's, there's a clear kind of Californian mm -hmm. like you know key players and it does seem to fit with that sort of ideology as well mm -hmm. the freedmen you have got some great stories about yeah. the freedmen dynasty particularly with um their uh, role in actually propagating literal larping live action role playing yep. um can you tell us a bit about that sure i'd love to <laughs> so <laughs> this is some of my favorite part of the book so talking about this the book for the last few days here in london and we've ended up sometimes too close to questions of policy for me. <laughs> like, yeah. How can we benchmark free ports better so that they have more positive outcomes for constituents? It's like, I, I, fuck me, I don't know. <laughs> this is literally, literally not my job. You know, I'm sorry if you have to figure that out yourself. Um, I would far prefer to, you know, range into some of the dustier corners of the anarcho-capitalist imagination, which is indeed where much of the book spends its time. And David Friedman is a very interesting guy. Raised in Hyde Park, his dad's teaching at the University of Chicago, goes to Harvard, comes back to Hyde Park to study theoretical physics. So never actually studies economics, but through connections enabled by, you know, greased by his father, ends up teaching economics here and there, and then eventually ends up in a law school. And in the meantime, extracurricularly is extremely involved in um, in um, mainstreaming and making more popular what was called the Society for Creative Anachronism, which is basically medieval reenactors. And he kicks off, for one thing, something called the Pensac Wars, which is sort of Punic Wars mixed with Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So it was an annual gathering of people for a couple of weeks in the um, rural part of Pennsylvania where tents are pitched, you know, fires are started. I guess probably boars are like gutted and put on spits. <laughs> and people acted and re and lived as if they were in the Middle Ages for... Um, a period of a couple of weeks, and this he's been doing for decades. He is interesting because he has been one of the most, let's say, fundamentalist of the reenactors in the sense that when others would say, well, you know, on cold nights, we might use the nylon sleeping bag or something <laughs> like that, or like pull out the Gore-Tex. I mean, like it's raining. Yeah. He was absolutely opposed to any sort of bending on the, the yeah. fidelity to the mm -hmm. Middle Ages. So he actually introduced something called the enchanted ground which is a sort of a roped off area within which if you entered you were not allowed to act in any way consistent with the 21st or late 20th century you need to remain in his case in his persona which was that of a 12th century berber poet who was muslim um, wore a turban only ate with his right hand cursed the name of non-believers praised the name of the prophet um, and it can seem like just the sort of uh, strange leisure activity of an eccentric and yeah. in some ways it is but the way i tried to kind of run with it a bit in the book is to say that that version of larping which is usually used as a kind of a pejorative right yeah. certainly on the left if you say someone is larping yeah. usually you're trying to discredit their politics is interestingly enough you know a core part of their idea of total commitment to a political kind of a project right the idea that you can LARP something into existence is actually not so different from the idea of like a Che Guevara saying, you know, the duty of the revolutionary is to create revolution. Yeah. Um, and there are certain things that have happened in the last few decades that could credibly make them feel like they're onto something. I mean, Cernovasian, who I mentioned before, has said quite openly, you know, first we LARPed a currency into existence, 
Bitcoin went from just a figment of someone's imagination to something worth tens of thousands of dollars per unit. So why can't we LARP a country into existence? So yeah. I'm kind of intrigued by that as a kind of a gesture of sort of a political ethos yeah. where there is no division between kind of work and play and theory and, and um, practice, uh, yeah. which, you know, arguably people in other political positions could learn from as well. Indeed, yeah. Um, just briefly before we move on, because I'm, I'm kind of I'm even more fascinated now listening to more about it. Um, but could you just briefly kind of talk about what is the appeal? Because normally when we talk about the Middle Ages specifically, so normally when we talk about these people, you know, like you said, it kind of moves from East Coast to West Coast. So it's, you know, the techno-utopianism of California. He was a Google engineer or his son was a Google engineer and whatnot. So what is the appeal of the Middle Ages to this particular cast of characters? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I think is a basic misunderstanding about libertarianism is that because they tend to try to reduce the role of the state, or if you're an anarcho-capitalist, you want to do away with the state altogether, that that would mean that, you know, what you would be working with is sort of just an unregulated space of kind of personal autonomy and personal freedom. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. If you're a kind of consistent anarcho-capitalist, especially, you're completely possessed with the question of how you can create a set of rules and regulations that can have sort of state-like effects of ensuring stability and predictability and order without becoming something so state-like that you've effectively recreated mm-hmm. the state by other means. Yeah. It's actually not easy to do at all. Yeah. And so for the one thing, it's not surprising that someone like Friedman is a lawyer because a lot of what goes into creating an anarcho-capitalist utopia or a libertarian paradise is legal engineering of some kind or another. There's ways that I think the libertarianism of the people I write about is very much a kind of utopia of rules. Mm. Um, and the idea that, you know, your every action with your neighbor would be regulated through like clauses A through E of the contract that you've signed. And in the case of the breach of contract, you'd have to turn to an arbitration authority. I mean, this is like actually not most people's idea of freedom. Yeah. Right? And yet for them, because it's individually chosen, it is, you know, the realization of the otherwise uh, fictional or idiomatic social contract. This is a contract that you've actually mm. signed. Why they are interested in the Middle Ages, and as I talk about in the book, other um, forms of law very different from our own, as David Friedman titled a collection of his works, including um, the Somali customary law tradition, is that they are interested in ways that you can create the rule-like behavior that is not always written down on paper. And here they follow someone like Douglas North, who also, when he speaks of rules, or even Paul Romer, when he speaks of rules, is not only talking about sort of legal writing, but he's also talking about shared sets of values or shared mindsets. And to um, many of the people I write about, one of the things that can reduce transaction costs in Douglas North's terms is um, ethnic homogeneity. So if you have people who have one race, one culture, one sense of shared civilization, they tend to trust each other more according to the way they see the world. Therefore, you maybe won't have to rely so much on written rules. When they look back at the Middle Ages or they look at Somali clan formations, they see sort of small-scale, relatively homogeneous groupings that are able to um, regulate disputes and conflicts between themselves in ways that don't have to appeal at every moment to something like a police force mm-hmm. or um, laws that have been centrally created. If you have some kind of infraction in the Middle Ages or in you know 19th century Somalia, you don't go to prison. Instead, there's a kind of a, a blood, blood yeah. price. Yeah. You don't have a, a standing military or a police force. If there's a problem that needs to be dealt with, the medieval community would gather the men of the community and they would go off and either, you know, discipline the transgressor or defend themselves from the invader. So the Middle Ages became for them a partial kind of um, reheated version of the sort of Anglo-Saxon theory of history, which is that the sort of self-governing tribes of the uh, German forests had come to the British Isles yeah. and um, fended off the Normans to some extent and preserved this sort of core of um, small-scale self-government, which they then brought with them to the United States. And 
if you read someone like Daniel Hannon or a lot of the stuff on the sort of English-speaking peoples, you get a pretty, a pretty um, strong reiteration of this idea too, the kind of Anglo-Saxon germ theory of history, as it's sometimes called. So you'd be surprised how directly they try to draw on the medieval. Yeah. But, I mean, maybe you've read the book, so you would know, but like this guy, Bruce Benson, commissioned to write, you know, uh, a study of criminal justice reform. And he spends about half the book just giving a very close description of the way that law and order was conducted in England in the 11th and 12th centuries. Yeah. And the way that the creation of central um, law taxation and then the sort of monopoly of force by the king ended up sort of um you know um debauching what had been a kind of a more pure form of libertarian self-rule yeah i think it comes through that they're they're libertarians but they're not very libertine type characters they're not absolutely not not interested in that kind of hippification 60s idea of libertarianism it's a much more yeah utopia of rules i think is Mm -hmm. uh they do like rules and Mm -hmm. laws and systems of government it comes through very clearly in the book the idea that they're not libertines is something that they're very self-conscious of and actually they are often the people i'm talking about right-wing libertarians are often plagued by what they see as the contamination of libertarianism by libertines yeah so the one chapter i have devoted to murray rothbard and lou rockwell is specifically uh, about their efforts in the 1990s to create what they call paleo-libertarianism. Mm. And the goal, as they put it, is to hive off the hippies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the argument is that these hippies have come in with their ideas of um, you know, unregulated self-creation. What that has precisely done is to like erode this very substrate of like shared values and shared customary actions that makes a lawless or, or a, sorry, a stateless society thinkable. Yeah. Just to kind of get into some of the conceptual aspects of the book. So early in the book, you suggest this zonal model as a way of capitalism kind of punching holes in the nation state. Mm. And the, impl- but the implication of that um, seems to be the nation state is not a, a capitalist artifact, although, you know, of course it is. Mm. So I wondered if you could kind of expand a bit more on this dialectic between nation states that are, you know, very clearly the product of capitalist industrial modernity mm-hmm. at the same time as we have these zonal forms being used to break up nation states in the interests of capitalism. Right. I mean, this is a kind of interesting debate within the libertarian community that I return to, especially by the end of the book, which is like the proposition on one side of the argument is that creating zones in a place like China or Dubai or indeed the United Kingdom could allow for like a degree of self-making and entrepreneurship and individual initiative that is being otherwise strangled by, you know, authoritarianism in China or bureaucratic, you know, overhang of social democracy in Great Britain or the United States. The other side of the argument is that, in fact, zones are just tools of the state rather than tools against the state, and that what happened in a place like China was not at all the case that you produced a kind of critical mass of zones which could then propose a counter model to Beijing's idea of capitalist development. In fact, the zones and their um, conduct were completely kept in harness the whole time, and they, they acted yeah. as a sort of a certain kind of a locomotive within very strictly defined parameters. So I think that I side actually with the latter argument in the end that this idea that that the national um, territory is being perforated in a way that drains central powers of their authority is questionable. However, I do think it's true that the states use that as a kind of a way of further insulating their own actions from democratic oversight and democratic accountability. So it is a kind of a version of the argument whereby nation states have no more power and they just have to subordinate themselves to the competitive um, forces of global capitalism. Instead, when they create these perforated areas, they simply say, we can't do anything that happens. We can't do anything to intervene into these spaces which we've set aside. We need to allow foreign investors, for example, to do their work there to get the maximum output. But I think that's just as much a way of sort of deflecting responsibility kind of tactically rather than reflecting like a true um, 
uh, sapping of their ability to intervene. Yeah. And I want to come back to this question of the relationship between the zones and um, force, you Mm. know, and particularly of public authorities. Um, So some of the, but before we do talk about that, just to talk a bit more about some of the kind of iconic paradigms of the zones that you talk through. So some of these zones are Hong Kong, where the book begins, as well as Canary Wharf here in London Mm. or Singapore. Um, but the biggest zone of all, I guess, or not, or, you know, the place where you've had the greatest kind of multiplication with the most significant historical consequences would seem to be China. Mm. So how did this zonal splicing and subdividing help propel Chinese capitalism and industrialization in your account? Well, I mean, there I'm completely following the work of, you know, sinologists and specialists in the field. It's not my own um, specific expertise. So... What I, what I read from their work is that you, know, you had an extraordinary situation, which is the entire landmass of the People's Republic of China was kind of a decommodified land mass and a decommodified labor force, which meant there was a kind of repressed potential there, which the zones sort of tactically or um, strategically used to open up sort of piecemeal. So the the idea of the zone was to, rather than allowing for a sudden entry of foreign capital and the, and the overnight transformation of the, the country, as would happen with the shock therapy in the Soviet Union later on, was to sort of open up these sort of dams and sluices and dikes to allow for small areas in which labor would be recommodified, land markets would be created, the impossibility of foreign ownership and foreign investment would be opened up, which would then... Um, allow for different possibilities and different risks. And to come into Shenzhen, I mean, this is especially relying on the extraordinary book called The Shenzhen Experiment by a guy named um, uh, Yuan Du, was to enter a different country. You you needed a passport to enter. Mm -hmm. You needed um, the right to enter. And once you did, you lost your rights that you would have beyond the walls of Shenzhen or beyond the, the fence of Shenzhen. This could look like something that was happening only in the sort of SEZs that one could identify on a map looking at the coast of southern China in particular. But what the work of other uh, Chinese historians and Chinese specialists show us is that the labor pass system, the hukou system that was used throughout the rest of the country, effectively did the same thing. So if you're a migrant laborer and you came into the city, you also lost your rights in the sense that you wouldn't have access to social welfare or the right to claim housing, and you sort of cast yourself into a more high-risk situation with the hope that there would be enough gains materially that you could bring money back to your family in the hinterland. So in, in rather than sort of one large um, legal, even homogeneous territory, China is sort of subdivided internally in all kinds of ways from the tier level of cities to the sites where one can and cannot draw on social welfare systems in a way that I, ha- I think helps us see the economic um, confrontation differently, for example, between China and the United States now. It's not sort of two titans, you know, facing off against one another. It's places that are internally experiencing sort of the benefits and the the losses of globalization in very um, territorially variegated ways, and not coincidentally, they're doing so, they're experiencing those gains and, and losses because of the legal design that has sort of been written onto the territory yeah. through these zones. So that, I mean, that stuff is, um, the story of China and the zones is fascinating on a number of levels. Um, not least because I think it helps explain things about, um, the character of the Chinese state that is often overlooked. Um, and it's, you know, that it's not monolithic. And I think mm-hmm. the story of the zones that you tell helps kind of account for that historically. But another fascinating example on a much kind of um, a much less grandiose scale is that of the Bantu stands in Cold War era apartheid South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an episode of that country's history, which I think has been kind of washed out by all the post-Cold War fables about the Rainbow Nation and what have you. Mm-hmm. And so this was the era in which um, South Africa... Um, during the Cold War, apartheid South Africa had a number of formerly independent black enclaves on its territory. And these were explicitly offered, in the story you tell, these were explicitly offered as a prob- as a solution to the problem of racial conflict and offering um, black Africans the possibility of self-determination, 
but in these kind of statelets that were surrounded on all sides by the apartheid state. So listeners can read more on one of these in particular um, on Siske in the show notes because this was an extract from the book, from uh, Quinn's book that was published in The Guardian. Um, but I wondered if you could tell us a little more about the story of the Bantu stands and Siske in particular. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the more one reads about, especially late apartheid South Africa, I think the more one can see co- kind of the problems of ge- political geography and kind of racial injustice in miniature. Why do I say that? The what the the sort of enlightened quote unquote liberal political elites in South Africa were facing at the end of the 1970s was what was widely described as a legitimacy crisis. So the, the Americans felt like the status quo was not acceptable. They could not continue to have white minority rule simply, you know, locked in by diktat. What the liberals wanted and what they said openly they wanted, they wanted to be able to transform the system somehow so that you would no longer have segregation and the inequalities defined by race as things that were products of law, but rather things that were just products of economic private ordering and market forces. So quite openly, they said, how do we get to the United States? How can we get to the model (laughs) that the U.S. has, which is a vastly unequal society based very openly on racial divisions and very openly mapped onto spatial segregation and territory. And yet nobody seems to think that it's a sort of an affront to the norms of humanity. Mm. And the most radical suggestion they had was that they could simply sort of shatter the unitary nation state of South Africa into hundreds, if not thousands of self-governing sort of statelets along the model of the Bantu stands, in which people would have voluntary um, rights of entry at a fee. Each little statelet could do a kind of bespoke, tailor-made design of what they thought the level of taxation should be, what kind of rights and obligations citizens should have. And if you were able to pay the fee to get in, then you could. If not, you could perhaps be a migrant labor worker, you could come in and out. But there would be at least the illusion of kind of individual freedom being secured by a central state that governed very lightly. And otherwise you just sort of would choose from this palette of options. And the book that proposes by a fellow named Leon Lowe and his wife, Frances Kendall was called the solution, South Africa, the solution. And it was the bestseller in, in, in South Africa Mm. in the late 1980s. The suggestion was, and he said quite openly in a quote to time magazine that what we want to do is to be able to let the black, the tiger of the black majority out of the cage without being eaten. And the solution there was effectively, you know, using a model of zoning and what would look like gated communities as a way to, do an end run around the possibilities of expropriation and central um, appropriation of, of um, and redistribution of economic wealth. This didn't remain only on paper because, as it turns out, one of the leaders of the Bantustan, Siskai, sort of commissioned Lowe as a guru to create an economic plan for his statelet. And what happened there was sort of tax extremely generous tax breaks and subsidies for the late, the wages of workers who would come in there they drew in a lot of investors very quickly from taiwan in particular israel in the second instances and other and other countries and produced basically sweatshop labor which appeared to libertarians from the outside like a sign of of the the power of the zone model all you have to do is sort of draw a line on the map and sort of open your arms to foreign capital and miracles will happen. They talked about the Siskai miracle. There was something on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Hmm. But when you look more closely, I mean, two things sort of belie that myth and that myth of the miracle. One is that the wages were being paid by the South African state. So Pretoria was covering the wages so that they was giving these investors a deal that they couldn't refuse. They could actually make money by hiring people because the subsidies were better than the wages they were paying out. So it was (laughs) the most grotesque example of corporate welfare on the one hand. And also the suppression of labor demands by the workers within the zone was being kept um, at bay through um, acts of terrorism and assassination. Um, at the very time that Siskai as a libertarian miracle was being celebrated in, you know, in the United States and beyond. John Blundell was one of the people, a British libertarian, who was singing the praises of Siskai at this very moment. So it seems to me that 
what what I find interesting about it is you get kind of the on the one hand the repro- the notion of reproducing economic inequality through private ordering in a way that somehow manages to solve the legitimacy problem and on the other hand you get the kind of way that supposedly free market solutions based on economic freedom are almost always sort of underwritten by the willingness of a certain kinds of state power to act in an authoritarian fashion yeah yeah Another um, another window on this discussion is uh, the gated community in California, where, as you portray, it offers this vision of emancipation and choice, um, seceding from decaying public services and rampant criminality and racial tension and what have you. And yet you end up in these kind of rigidly policed communities with all these intricately detailed regulations, mm-hmm. you know, about the colors that you're allowed to paint your house or the precise length of the grass on your lawn and so yeah. on. Whether the swing is wood or metal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, how heavy your dog is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Utopia of rules. How old your, how yeah. old your lover is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this was, I mean, I, you've kind of touched upon this utopia of rules, but I wondered if you could... Um, Kind of, and you know, there's the Anglo-Saxon kind of germ theory of history, as you put it. But I wondered if you could talk a bit more about this paradox beyond the kind of the appeal of, um, you know, the kind of consumerist vision of liberation, at the same time as this rigidly enforced community. Yeah, I mean, the paper utopias are one thing, but one of the things I suppose I was trying to do with the book was to say that these laboratories often in many cases came into existence, even if only in miniature. So one of the things that was especially interesting for me was this 90s discourse, which, you know, some of us might remember as young children, I know, like sort of have this vague sense of people really freaking out about gated communities in the 90s, like as a, as a kind of a symptom of the dissolution of unity and everyone is withdrawing to their own little fortress spaces and what happened to the public sphere and so on. Yeah. And so there was that a bit of like a hysteria or a panic about gated communities that was happening in the in the pages of the the mainstream press. But what was interesting about my gang, these libertarians and anarcho-capitalists, is they were extremely enthusiastic about the this emergence of and the proliferation of gated communities as kind of scale models of private ordering, of the idea that you could have private government that could progressively take more and more of services that a state would normally cover and and offer them as kind of a la carte options in which one's power and influence was not given on the principle of one person, one vote, but more often based on the size of the property you had, the number of properties you had inside of the community, and so on. So the yeah. the kind of extremely unglamorous space, I mean, it's hard to think of a less glamorous space than like a gated community south of Tucson. I mean, these are like <laughs> completely boring, sort of bland uh, milk toast kind of environments were for them, you know, kind of the bleeding edge of the possibility of a kind of future world of private, private mini states. And it seems outlandish in some ways it is, but to return to the South African example, I had a, an early response from a journalist who's from South Africa reading my book. And he was like, well, much of what you describe as secession here is is actually already the way life is lived, like in the Western Cape. Like there, we have exactly this, what you're describing, what they're hoping for, dreaming for, their paper utopias that actually exist. The central state is offering very little, even basic utilities now have become hard to come by. So what do you do? You own your own power grid, you drill your own wells, you hire your own pl- your security forces. So it is both a kind of utopia but also a description of a certain kind of reality Mm. i think that one of the california angles that i found quite um interesting was something i mentioned in the in the end of the book in the conclusion which was from octavia butler's parable of the sower which is a pretty extraordinary novel that i actually only read recently during the pandemic and at one point in the novel which is all set in southern california she herself you know set from the point of view of a young girl living in a a gated community that is sort of defended by the residents against the marauding sort of drug-crazed gangs beyond the walls of the the compound. And the the walls are breached. They have to leave the compound. And the only safe haven you have is this desalination plant, which has been set up on the coast, 
by a kind of Japanese, Canadian, German conglomerate of some kind. So they have a kind of extraterritorial enclave where security is provided, services are provided. If you enter, you give up your rights as the vestigial American citizen, but by that time it doesn't really mean very much. And you get, you know, a, a bunk in the dorms kind of a thing. And the commentary that I found quite insightful from Butler there was her main character says, you know, we had a lot of sci-fi novels in my house growing up. We had whole shelves full of people, you know, being inside the company town or the company state. And there was always a hero who manages to escape and even overthrow the company town or the company state. But she's like, we didn't have any books about people trying hard as hell to get inside of the company town. But she's like, that's actually reality. That's uh, life. Like, that's not science fiction, which makes her, you know, like kind of one of the most genius writers of the near future. She's writing science fiction, but of something that actually comes closer to the dynamics of our own world. So, yeah, I, I guess one thing that comes through again and again in the book is how these um, all of these kind of gated communities that you've just been describing of various different sorts, all designs, they're all dependent ultimately on state power, that of the CCP in China or the South African Defence Forces in apartheid South Africa. Um, and also an underclass of labourers is is in there either explicitly or, ex or, or implicitly in the way that they're going to work um, economically. So, I mean, does this lead you to think that this is all kind of... I don't know, these zones, these gated communities, they all rely on um, positing things which they look to exclude. They're all essentially unworkable. And, you know, the, the world of zones, to kind of take it to its logical conclusion, is impossible because then it would remove the thing that it's essentially all kind of sitting on. I think that's part of it. I mean, I think that part of the idea is to say that this this thing that I'm calling the zone is often presented as a kind of economic entity, mm. but it is actually more a creature of politics than a creature of economics. I mean, someone asked me recently, well, what's the good economic study about the effects that zones have on, let's say, GDP per capita? And, and, mm. and is that something that zone boosters sort of appeal to when they're making the case? Mm. And the answer is that, that they don't, because it wouldn't be a very persuasive study. Uh, what they do is they work through anecdote and they work through, you know, example cases which then stand in for an argument um, a perfect example here is Paul Romer um, Nobel Prize winning economist someone who you would think uh, trained in the neoclassical tradition would be happy to sort of pull out the models and graphs and the numbers to prove the idea that everyone should create a zone of their own inside of their state but he doesn't and so what does he do he tells a fable about Hong Kong he tells mm -hmm. a fable about Shenzhen so I think that the the zone as myth is very powerful even if it is totally unpersuasive as mm. reality mm. i mean my favorite example there is the proposal for something called a hayek tower okay. which was uh that they were actually starting to build during the pandemic which is just a sort of stainless steel pole that they would put in the middle of the caribbean <laughs> with a kind of aluminum shell wow. and some like mood lighting inside and people were saying look the perfect escape <laughs> and I mean, like the idea that this is something that could actually exist or function for longer than about 15 minutes is so patently foolish and ridiculous that like the first impulse is to like never yeah. bother thinking about this twice again. But on the other hand, I feel like symptomatically it tells us so much about the ability to kind of exactly as you say, repress and forget all mm. of the systems of social reproduction upon which we totally rely that it's worth thinking more about because it's something that for worse, I was going to say for better or for worse, mm. but for worse, keeps on driving politics. And I think the the case of the UK, I mean, maybe we were going to talk a bit about the sort of Singapore and Brexit example, because the way that free ports have operated in the imagination of the Conservative Party for some mm. time now, when I say for some time, and I mean for as long as I've been alive, <laughs> for 40 years yeah. plus, um, tells you something about the power of the myth even if it as doesn't have the kind of like persuasive mm. power beyond its status as kind of a viral notion which sort of exists in the uh, in the the world of policy and and reproduces itself sort of endlessly yeah i mean maybe it goes back to larping to to a certain yeah. extent that there is yeah. they have a rich imaginative life and if you know that is one I guess it's not something you always immediately associate with economists. You would normally think it's about <laughs> graphs and, you know, models, as, as you were saying. But in fact, if they can put forward this thing in an in economic guise, which has a really kind of compelling political moral to it mm -hmm. almost, then maybe that's the, you know, part of the, the real function mm -hmm. that these zones are performing. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, the, I think the case of 
Truss and Quartang is a good yeah. example of LARPing, right? I mean, I really think that that mini budget and that was an attempt to sort of say all that we need to do is show the level of our commitment and we will sort of overpower the, the arguments of our opponents. And, and in some ways they had some precedent because, you know, the all of the, the good mainstream economists had made dire predictions about what would happen to Britain after leaving the European mm. Union. And although, you know, the outcome hasn't necessarily been a big strong improvement, it hasn't been the kind of tanking of the entire financial sector and the mm. kind of loss of all competitive edge and global markets, which certainly some supposedly sober, um, rational financial experts were mm. predicting. So the idea that LARPing is a way that one can do politics is like not without precedent. It is not always the worst choice. Hmm. But in the case of the, the, the conservative imagination, it seems to have stood in for other insights, which I think one could have gotten much further with. And th this is where I think, you know, maybe I'll circle to the Singapore example that yeah. the thing I say in my chapter, which is not novel, and it's the thing that everyone who's ever written a kind of op-ed about the idea of Singapore on Thames almost always says, is that the idea that Singapore is a libertarian paradise is yeah. bollocks. Yeah. Actually, take one second look at it. 90% of the housing is owned by the state. Massive central provident fund which from which you can borrow for your education and, and retirement. Sovereign wealth fund used to kind of as a venture capital um, fund with which to um, fund new forms of R&D, which might provide new competitive edges. So it's an extremely statist, obviously, yeah. um, quasi-socialist model rather than a libertarian model. So why is it that when, let's say, the new budget under Sunak is rolled out and you have a combination of free ports and investment zones, why can't the sort of mainstream conservative just embrace the real Singapore more openly? Yeah, indeed, yeah. And, 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 that's where actually mm. someone like Dominic Cummings, I think, is a little bit more clear-eyed, honestly, than someone like uh, Truss or Quartang, because he's quite open about that, right? And that guy wrote like eight eight blog posts or something about Lee Kuan Yew's memoir. Yeah. I mean, he was really like, why don't we embrace Singapore too? Why this fixation on LARPing as if the market is a space outside of the government that can be sort of realized um, without state intervention? Why would your average British person have a problem with the idea that the state might be able to help out the average mm. entrepreneur or the average citizen. So that I think is, it's a sign of the overhang of, you know, I know that you talk a lot about in the show about the kind of the end of the the grip of neoliberalism, but I find it hard to, to think that it's truly over when I see the inability of conservatives to sort of depart from the unhelpful and inaccurate and increasingly politically self-destructive notion that the state and the market are sort of two options and one can only choose one or the other. Yeah. So the kind of uh, re-seeing seeing Dominic Cummings as the real, the real <laughs> Singaporean is actually... <laughs> Hello, listener. That's the end of the free part of this interview. If you want the rest of it, please do join us over at patreon.com slash bungacast catch you there